Um, we had, you know, one of the premier performances by a Minnesota-based magician that we've seen in years, which I'm really impressed with. Um, didn't know what to expect, but I was blown away. That is actually true, but uh, you know what I mean. <laughs> oh, man, it's good to be back. Glad you're here. Glad we're all in one place again. Thanks for being here. Um, my prayer is that um, we were able to start off the day getting some kind of a keen sense of, um, or at least maybe just the beginning of a sense of what God might have in store for you this weekend. Um, this, this experience is a, definitely a special one. It's a particular one in all the experiences that you have day to day, week to week throughout the course of your year. Um, but it doesn't mean that this is the only place that God speaks. And you probably know that, that, that God speaks through your, your home church and your family and your coworkers and your friends. Um, God even speaks, dare I say, through our enemies, through the people that we don't care for, that we don't agree with, um, that God is saying something to you and I individually, particularly, personally, in every moment of our lives. And maybe you just started to uncover a little bit of what God wants to say to you this weekend. Um, and I, I gave you the freedom to be honest this morning. I hope that that is, is still a freedom that you feel all weekend long, maybe for the rest of your life even. I also want to give you the freedom to, to allow other people to hear a word from the Lord this weekend that may be different from yours. Um, sometimes that's hard for those of us who are, are deeply connected to others, either as best friends, spouses, parents, and children, um, there are times that Kenna and I will have a, an identical experience. We'll go to a retreat together or a church service, something like that, and we will come away with completely different messages from the Holy Spirit. And they usually don't contradict, but they are always, uh, or they tend to be a little, they need a little conversation for us to figure out. Um, so it's just really worthy for you to have ongoing conversations with the people in this room, whether you live with them back home or not, about what you're hearing from God. And the reason I say that is because tonight's topic is very connected to that idea that, that you and I are placed in a world surrounded by other strange humans. <laughs> and if you're anything like me, you're in a house filled with other strange humans, you know, um, God could have done a lot of things a lot of ways, and sometimes I wonder at why God did things the way that he did. And one of the things that I wonder is like, man, it is so beautiful and so challenging that so much of our relationship with God passes through our relationships with other people. It's so fascinating. Um, sometimes people, uh, I would say, move the pendulum a little bit too far in one direction because our, our Christian faith is not merely a me and God faith. It certainly is that, so please don't hear me wrong. But it's not simply that because so much of our faith, so much of the Gospels, has to do with me and you and God. We and God. It's the reason that we have a church in the first place. This is the reason that we have Family Fest and Winter Weekend in the first place, right? I mean, look around for five seconds this weekend and tell me that community, the power of community, isn't important, where two or three are gathered, right? Um, other human beings that we're surrounded by are massively important in our journey of faith. And that comes in all shapes and sizes, all forms. And there are some ways that we don't maybe appreciate the beauty and the gravity of the people that we're surrounded by. 
We can miss that meaning sometimes if we're not constantly attentive to it. Uh, I can tell you where I was on that day in 2003. Uh, I was a junior in college, and I was uh, the vice president of the junior class. Oh, good for me. What actually happened was there were three people, president, secretary, and something else. What's the other thing? Thank you. Yes, yeah, see? I, this will make sense in a moment. Those three people were three friends of mine, three girls uh, were on a ticket. Their other vice presidential candidate backed out at the last second. So they called me up and were like, hey, you want to be vice president? And we still had to run and we had to win, but I was like, sure, I'll give it a shot. And we won and it was great. So lest you think that I won the popularity contest, I was just dragged on the coattails of three pretty girls. Story of my life. Uh, <laughs> but I was vice president and we were um, walking through the student center up on the third floor where the student uh, government offices were. And we ran into the four leadership, president, vice president, secretary, treasurer, I don't know if you knew, uh, for the sophomore class, the grade right below us, right? And we didn't, run in, we didn't interact with them a lot. They were a different grade. They had different activities, different roles, things like that. But I had seen them around and stuff. But one of the other folks in our group knew those four people better because they had just had more interaction, communication with them. So they introduced all of us to these four people, right? And there was a person I don't remember, a person I don't remember, my future wife, and a person I don't remember, okay? <laughs> now, here's what didn't happen. I did not immediately fall at her feet and say, are you an angel? Because you just fell from heaven into the third floor of LaFortune Student Union in South Bend, Indiana. That did not happen. I thought she was very nice, and that was it. End of story. I didn't talk to that girl for a year and a half. <laughs> not on purpose, I just had no interaction with her whatsoever. We ended up in the same graduate program after undergrad, where we became really good friends. And then I graduated and we started dating. And then we got married. And then we had seven children. There's a lot in between there, but that's the story, right? But go back for a second. If you would play the movie of my life back and you would pause at that moment in 2003, idiot 21-year-old Pat Millay had zero idea of the significance of that moment. How much that beautiful woman would mean to me in just a few short years, right? No idea. God certainly knew. That was one of the ways that he was going to start this process out for us. Had no idea the meaning of that. Interactions like that happen to you and me fairly frequently. Maybe not to the level of a wife or a husband or a best friend or something like that, but there are all kinds of ways that we miss the significance in the moment just because we're not omnipotent like God. That's okay, right? I could also tell you where I was in about... I don't know the exact year. I would ballpark maybe 2011, let's say. Um, I drove up to the Caribou in Richfield, right off of uh, Cedar and 66th. And um, I pulled up and parked my car. And there was a woman standing in the bushes right in front of me, like in among the bushes. Um, she was probably maybe mid to upper 50s ballpark. Um, thin, um, short hair, graying hair, and she was sobbing. And when I say sobbing, I mean like screaming. Um, all alone, all by herself. So I parked the car, went up to her, and was just trying to assess like, what is happening? Are you okay? Is everything all right? And 
It took about a minute and a half for her to get the words out, my daughter was raped. Um, at that point, Ella Claire was one. Um, I, I don't know what to say in situations like that. I can talk in front of 100,000 people really easily, but in front of one person in desperate need, I don't know what to say. And maybe there's nothing to say. Maybe that's not the point. Um, I talked through just some logistical stuff with her, like, is, is she safe? Does she need help wherever she is? Um, and all of that stuff had been taken care of. She was safe. She was with the authorities and things. Um, but, but her mother had just found out what had happened to her little girl. Um, I, I, all I could say is that I'm, I'm going to pray for you. And I did. And I do still, often. Um, I have no idea where that woman is now. No idea where her daughter is. I don't know who she was. Um, there, there are times that we have encounters with other children of God that we we've eventually in this life understand the significance of that encounter, like me and Kenna in 2003. There are other times that you and I encounter other children of God that we will never, on this side of the veil, have any understanding what that was about. And yet, even those can have significant, even powerful impact on our lives and on their lives. The truth is that we, we affect each other. Uh, Pete mentioned earlier this morning that last year, my wife and I, Ken and I, um, started a business called the Martin Center for Integration. It's for the integration of faith and mental health. Ken is a marriage and family therapist. We both have a ministry background. All too often, I think those worlds are separate and they don't get used well together. And I think they make perfect sense together. So we started this business. Uh, what we knew and what we have been confirmed in is that many mental health struggles are interior. They are mental and emotional realities that are, that are inner for us. But there are a lot of mental health challenges for all of us that are exterior, that are relational, that are based in family of origin, family of creation, best friends, uh, marriage, coworkers. Those kinds of relationships can be deeply troubling and deeply helpful for us at times. Um, this Christian community of ours, like I mentioned, is deeply and constantly concerned with others. We are here for each other. And these encounters echo through eternity, friends. There are people that met Jesus 2,000 years ago that are proof to us of how much these encounters matter because you and I are here because they were there 2,000 years ago. Um, you and I know that truth most of the time, that, that we can impact each other. I think... It's easy for us, though, to miss how much we influence each other sometimes. The good news is that my, bu my buddy C.S. Lewis has some things to say about that. He gave a sermon one time. Uh, C.S. Lewis himself was Anglican. He was a member of the Church of England. So he gave a sermon once um, in a church in England. And uh, there's a section from that that I want to read. It's the very, very end of that sermon called The Weight of Glory, W-E-I-G-H-T. That phrase, weight of glory, comes from a verse in 2 Corinthians, and he comes back to that through and through. But the end of this is some of the most beautiful things I've ever heard about how you and I as human beings impact each other. Uh, just a word of preface, he's going to use the phrase blessed sacrament toward the end of it. 
You'll have to forgive C.S. Lewis briefly for being Anglican, if that's not a part of your tradition. But in the Anglican, Catholic, other churches, blessed sacrament has to do with the presence of Christ in the communion, right? So when he says blessed sacrament, if that's not a part of your tradition, that ought to be read as the most present that Jesus can possibly be, right? Just in case that's uh, confusing, right? Um, (laughs) You will begin reading with me where it says, begin reading here. I know... (laughs) It's late, I just wanted to make sure, okay? (laughs) Meanwhile, the cross comes before the crown, and tomorrow is a Monday morning. A cleft has opened in the pitiless walls of the world, and we are invited to follow our great captain inside. The following him, of course, is the essential point. That being so, it may be asked what practical use there is in the speculations which I have been indulging. I can think of at least one such use. It may be possible for each to think too much of his own potential glory hereafter. It is hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about that of his neighbor. The load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are in some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities, it is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilization, these are mortal, and their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play. But our merriment must be of that kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption. And our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feeling for the sins in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence which parodies love as flippancy parodies merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. If he is your Christian neighbor, he is holy in almost the same way. For in him also Christ very laditat, the glorifier and the glorified. Glory himself is truly hidden. A few quick words. First of all, that phrase very laditat means truly hidden. If the person near you is your Christian neighbor, then in that particular person, Christ is truly hidden. Because you and I know that, that baptism matters, that baptism changes something. Baptism makes a difference. It doesn't mean that nobody else is the children of God. It means that baptism mean, means something, right? 
Matthew 25, and the king will answer them, truly I tell you, just as you did it to one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did it to me. Jesus doesn't say, you, you, I liked what you did. He says, you did it to me. Friends, we are one body of Christ. We are all connected. Not a single human being who has ever lived is separate from you. That means that you and I have the great honor and the great privilege of being there for each other. It doesn't mean that it is your responsibility to take care of everyone else's problems. There's a thing called differentiation, which means they get to be themselves, you get to be yourself. But charity, sacrificial love, is this thing in between. It means I'm not taking over your life and doing things for you. It also doesn't mean that I'm going to separate myself from you and leave you alone and say that's your problem, deal with it on your own. It means that I'm going to sacrifice to the extent of my ability because I am going to put your needs before mine. That's what C.S. Lewis is talking about here, the weight of my neighbor's glory, that every single human being you have ever encountered has an eternal destiny. Every single human being you've ever encountered has an eternal destiny. And the way that I interact with the people in my life is going to help them along one of those two paths. There are a lot of ways that I look back over the years of my life, and I need to ask forgiveness for the ways that I have not helped someone on the path to the Lord, by my words, by my actions, by my thoughts that maybe they don't even know about. That interaction is so crucial to us as Christians. Mother Teresa called this her five-finger gospel. She learned it from her mom. Her five-finger gospel was, you did it to me. That the way that you and I interact with each other is one of the key ways that we interact with the Lord. You did it to me. C.S. Lewis knew this deeply well, too. When he was uh, fighting in World War I, he was was a soldier during World War I, and he and one of his friends made a promise to each other that if one of them didn't survive, the other would take care of that one's mother. C.S. Lewis's buddy was killed in the war, and C.S. Lewis lived with and cared for his mother until the day that she died, about 25 years. I got the opportunity with Kenna to go to his home in England, near Oxford, to tour C.S. Lewis's home, to see where he lived, where he wrote, where he would care for his mom. He knew that the weight of her glory was also on his back. Not because she was his mom, but because she was his sister in Christ. She was connected to him, and he had made the solemn vow to his brother in Christ, his friend who had died. I suspect that we all know this. So maybe you're thinking, get to the point. (laughs) We love each other, that's fine. But let's be frank, sometimes we don't love each other, right? Why is it so hard? (laughs) If Christ is present in the word and Christ is present in your neighbor, why is it so easy to love the word and hard to love your neighbor? Because my Bible doesn't make passive-aggressive comments at me, Pat. (laughs) Because my Bible doesn't tell me that I should grow up and get a real job because my Bible doesn't criticize my spouse because my Bible doesn't ask me uh, indirectly why I am not in better shape, right? (laughs) Listen, we as human beings, we come with baggage. You and I know this. None of us are a clean slate. First of all, because we're fallen. Second of all, because along the way, we tend to pick up baggage, stuff that we chose to pick up or stuff that was just handed to us that we had no control over. 
We've got baggage. And what that means for a lot of us is we build up these walls of self-protection. Which makes sense, because we are literally hardwired to keep ourselves safe. That's true physically, it's also true emotionally. We are hardwired to keep ourselves protected from harm, right? It's one of the natures of our species. But that thing can be the very thing that can keep us separate and distant from one another at times. Like when I drive my kids to school up in Frogtown in St. Paul, and I pass by at least one, sometimes three, panhandlers asking for money on the side of the on-ramp. And the sinner in me does that thing where the reflex is, well, if I didn't see them, then it's not my fault if I don't give them money. So what do I do? I pretend to fiddle with the gall darn radio. And I pretend to be looking for something in the back seat. (sighs) Listen, there's no rule that says you have to give someone money if they're asking on the side of the road. It's a complicated matter. There's no rule that says that you can't give them money. Either way is fine. What is not fine is pretending another human being is invisible, right? I do it all the time. I'm guilty of it. That's self-protection. I don't want to be the kind of person who sees someone in need and doesn't do anything. So I pretend that I don't see a human being made and intended by God. Uh, The first parish that I worked at, there was a great mom named Mary Beth, who was a volunteer in the youth group. And I feared her like the devil himself. I'm just kidding, not like the devil himself. She was wonderful. She was great. She had a totally different personality from me. I was big on like energy and joy and it's going to be great. And she was great at making things better. And the way she did that was finding every little insignificant problem with the ministry. And here's the thing. A good organization of any kind, including the church, needs that person. But I hate that person. Like, we're trying to have fun, Mary Beth. Chill out. And she's like, but it could be better. This was not great. I'm like, duh. <laughs> because I'm self-protective. I have my own reputation. I'm worried about my pride. If the, if the ministry is not perfect, does that mean I'm not good? Maybe I'm a bad youth minister. Maybe I shouldn't be doing this. Maybe I'm a failure, Mary Beth. It's embarrassing, right? Self-protection. My beautiful twins, Juliana and Cora. One of the things that I protect is my sleep. And let me tell you, when twins wake up at 5, 10 in the morning or earlier, every gosh forsaken day of their lives, I get into self-protection mode. And the twins are all of a sudden the enemy to my sleep. And I will do anything to keep the enemy away from my castle, which is my bed, right? So I am a not charitable father before 2 p.m., but especially before 7 a.m., right? I'm self-protective. I suspect that you have situations like this. You're probably a better person than me, but I think all of us have moments like that that we are self-protective and we keep others at a distance because we don't acknowledge the power that we have in us and the beauty they have in them, at least for that second. Where the truth is, the scary thought is, that if the presence of Jesus Christ is in your neighbor and the person sitting next to you right now, the presence of Jesus Christ is also in you, powerfully, completely, fully, Even if you and I don't express it very well, the presence of Christ is in you now. And you have everything you need to be Christ to everyone in every situation, even the hard ones, every moment of every day. All you and I have to do in humility is just like John the Baptist said, right? He must increase, I must decrease. 
I don't hate myself. I'm not going to try to ignore my needs, but I, myself, the part of me that wants to protect and only look out for me, we call that pride, right? That part of me has to die. Jesus puts it that way. I have to die to self, actually, so that he can increase in me and so he can be reflected out to you and everyone else around me. That's the only way that Christ can be fully powerful in you and in me, is if you and I have the strength, the humility, the courage, and the grace to allow ourselves to die to ourselves, so that we can be left with nothing but the perfection of Christ shining through us. I'll, close with, uh, I'll leave you with one of my favorite examples of how that happened. Um, so it's just some folks that I knew about how influential human interaction can be in each other's lives. Uh, Kenna worked at a, at a church this was probably about 10 years ago or so, uh, 12 years ago, I think. And uh, in that church, there were uh, a married couple who, uh, they were early married and they desperately wanted to have kids. They were so excited to start a family, have kids, and it, it wasn't happening. They'd been married for a year and weren't able to be pregnant. We're married for two years, weren't able to be pregnant. We're married for five years, weren't able to be pregnant. And as someone who has one of my best friends in the world, went through many, many years of infertility. They have adopted three beautiful children now, different story for a different day. But that, that's a painful journey that many of us know, many of us know people that we love. Um, after five years, they were able to conceive. Pregnancy test came back positive. They went to the ultrasound, found out they were having twins as well, twin boys, found out pretty early on in the pregnancy, though, that the pregnancy was very complicated. I'm not going to bore you with the medical details. It's twin, multiple stuff that I know now because we have twins. I didn't know before this. It was a complicated pregnancy. It was dangerous. And uh, what happened is that one of the sons, Nicholas, was born very healthy. They were born early, about 31 weeks. But, they were born, but Nicholas was born relatively healthy for a premature child. Andrew, his younger brother, was not in good shape. Um, from the outset, he had trouble with everything. He, he couldn't eat on his own. He couldn't breathe on his own. Um, they were worried about infections, so they were worried about him. He, he couldn't even be with his mom and dad yet. Um, they put them in their own little you know, uh, incubation kind of uh, little things and kept them separate from the world out of safety. And um, the doctors told their mom and dad to prepare themselves for Andrew to die that night. Um, so they, they did the best they could. They, their family was all there in the waiting room, and they prayed, and they prayed, and they cried, and they prayed some more. Um, and in the morning, both sons were still alive. Um, Andrew was not doing any better. He was doing worse, actually, but he was still alive. Um, and in the course of their conversation and their prayer, they got this kind of strange, weird idea. They, they went to the doctors, and they said, all right, listen, um, Question for you, if the brothers were to be together, would it be any more dangerous for one, either of them than if they were separate? And they kind of went back and they talked it over as a medical team and they said, no, I think if we just had the twins together, it wouldn't make Nicholas or Andrew any worse off. So they said, all right, can, can we as their parents, can we request that, that we do that? That, that if, if Andrew's not gonna survive, that he doesn't end this life alone, and he gets to be with his brother, who he's been with for seven months anyway. You know, The doctor said, we, we can do that. That's fine. So they put them together in the same incubator. And something weird started happening. Because in about 
six or so hours, Andrew's heartbeat started to get a little bit stronger and pick up a little bit. After about 24 hours, he was starting to really show signs of improvement. Circulation was better. O2 levels were rising. His heartbeat was getting even stronger. They kept him in the same incubator. Not for the whole time. They would take breaks because they wanted them to not be like all over each other and get wires tangled and all that, but they would keep them together for a few hours a day. And they would increase that time day by day, little by little. After a week, Andrew took his first break from his ventilator, from his breathing tubes. After two weeks, Andrew took his first actual meal by swallowing and not through a feeding tube. After a month, Andrew was off of a feeding tube entirely. After six weeks, he was entirely off of oxygen. After two months of still spending time together, here and there, here and there, more every day, they were able to be held by their parents, finally. And about three months later, they went home. Those boys are 12 today. That's a miracle. And the doctors would have told you, there's no way this is happening. They came to them after, and afterward and they said, this can't happen. <laughs> this shouldn't have happened. This makes zero sense. Sure, there are, are natural reasons that human beings affect each other. And the brothers that were together in the womb for, nine, for seven months or whatever, it makes sense that they would find some physiological connection. That's fine. But man, oh man, I'm telling you, if that's not a particular illustration of what you and I can be for each other, what you and I ought to be for each other, I don't know what is. Uh, this question will come up in our small groups, but I'll leave you with this. Who's the kind of person in your life that, that you might be, be being asked by God to be that for? Please don't move into someone's bedroom just to be close to them. That's not what I'm saying. But who, <laughs> who is a person in your life that may need connection and they may need it from you in ways that you can give that's not unhealthy, that's good and healthy, but still in ways that you can give? Who is a person that, that may be alone? All of us know what loneliness is, right? But some of us know loneliness in a deeper way, a more abiding way. Some of us know the loneliness that comes with loss of a loved one. Some of us know the loneliness that comes with a, with a broken family, a broken home. Some of us know the loneliness that comes from the end of a friendship or moving across the country or just some kind of a loss, some kind of a separation. And I suspect that you know people in your life who may be experiencing something like that. In their darkness of isolation, are you maybe a person who can offer them the connection that only comes from God, shining Jesus to them? Lots of other stuff for you to talk about in your small group. That might be one of them. What we're going to do is we're going to um, take a moment for you to, to stretch yourselves out a little bit and head to your small groups to talk over some of this with one another, to mirror Christ to each other in your small group. And again, Pete mentioned this morning, small group has a lot of different approaches. I can't encourage you enough to just push maybe 1% further than feels totally comfortable. Because I guarantee that you are in a small group with people who want to be Christ back to you, and they want to receive what you have to give. And I think that's a great gift that you can offer them too, okay? Go ahead and take some small group time. We'll wrap up after that. Thanks, friends.